Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello, subscribers, it's Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com place to go don't forget to check it out head over there it'll only take you a few minutes and you can click through some of our previous episodes and get a bit of a feel for some of the fantastic topics and interviews we've had over the 200 plus episodes how are you mark i'm well brendan i'm really really well the weather is great everything is good Yes, we had a couple of very windy nights, Mark, and actually I've got a review. I've just just, just pop, popped Ooh. into my head. I, I've <laughs> thought of a review. We can um, segue into this review quite well. Oh, hang on. Let me turn off Miss intro. <laughs> For some reason, he's gone on loop. Um, there we go. Our production values keep improving every week, don't they? So, yeah, very, very windy, and I thought, okay, um, we might lose power because, as you know, we're in a fairly treed region, a suburb, a very bushy suburb, Mark, and typically when, whenever there was even mild winds in Melbourne, our power w- would go out for, you know, half an hour to several hours to sometimes several days. Very frustrating. Um, however, during one of the recent really big episodes of winds that we had in our, in our um, metropolitan region, Mark, we were lucky in that we didn't have power go out. So I think some of the upgrading they've done with the lines have helped. helped. But however, I thought last night, um, because it was very, very noisy and there was a few branches heading um, onto the ground that I flicked over into backup mode, Mark, on my Tesla oh. battery. Excellent. And as you know very well, because you sort of got me onto this because you have one of these as well, um, um, I installed or I had an installation of a Tesla home and battery, which is connected to our solar power system about, oh, it's almost a year ago, Mark, now, and uh, been very, very happy with it. I mean, yeah, it's a bit of bit of money up front, but um, it's already in my mind anyway paying its way and I think I crunched the numbers and I had a bit of a deal that was done with the power company that they they tied in with Tesla and uh, we got it at a, at a decent discount as well and also we get an extra amount back every year if we contribute to their um, sort of I forget what they call it their power grid or something or other where where during peak times potentially they'd suck power out of our battery and um, put it into the grid during peak periods it's called what's it called it was called i'm just looking on the app right now it's just trying to update itself Um, i love it because it it, one of the my my criticisms one of my personal concerns with um you know my we've got a a six kilowatt system on the house and a Tesla battery, and we're almost off the grid. But I sort of like the idea that um, that you're not off the. That there's um, power in numbers. There's um, synergy that occurs if you remain on the grid. You know, if you if we just become a country of of complete isolationists, and each of us. Um, uh, have our own energy supply, then we will be less able to support. You know 
new ventures will be less able to support um, the poor and vulnerable and minorities. Um, it's a much better system, the one you've described, where an overarching authority can, in an emergency, pinch a little bit of power you've stored away to balance out the grid and, yes. and make sure everything's stable. I love it, Brendan. I and think they, it's only, they only promise that they'll do it maximum four times a year and it won't affect, you know, if, if you need a reserve for power outages, etc. Et yeah, it's called the Tesla Virtual Power Plant, Mark. Um, and I've just gone into the app and I've clicked off backup mode i've got it back on self-sufficiency mode now because the winds have started going down and it's that simple you just click on it and say let's go into backup mode and it charges up the battery to 100 percent. and then if you have a power outage you have that 100 percent to to drain um rather than you know the usual which is um during the day if if we're getting enough solar power um it will charge the battery and supply the home and if not, the battery um, helps supply the power to the home um, and eventually it drains down to it. You can set, I think I've got mine set on around about 20-odd percent or something, Mark, as a reserve. Um, so overnight um, the battery gets drained and we try not to use the grid and then um, once the battery hits that 20% or so, it just stays there and then we start using the grid and we have that 20% in in the background if we do have a power outage and we have had several power outages because it sort of tracks it and the good news is we've um, had power because we've just used the battery and um, yeah you have to be you have to be clever about how much you use and not uh, trying to get the girls not to run the, <laughs> run the hair dries and all the it, and it, oh my goodness when I look at our app there are certain appliances in the house that just my goodness, you don't realise how much power they draw. Um, uh, hair dryers and, and electric kettles are another one. Um, it, you just see that big spike on the graph. It, uh, the visual representation makes me more, uh, I don't know, it sort of feels like a video game to try yes. and keep the numbers down. Yes, and, you, yeah, especially in summer, um, it's it's a bit of a challenge, isn't it, because you you look at the app, um, well, I'd look at the app several times a day and I'd be saying, <laughs> yes, 99% solar, you know, free or, or, or grid-free today, you know, self-sufficient. Um, it's During winter it, it struggles a bit and we might only get 20 to 40% um, um, self-sufficiency, but, yeah, it's fantastic. It gives you a good feeling, doesn't it, on the inside when it says you're basically 100% um, um, self-sufficient with the battery yeah, and, and your solar um, over a 24-hour period. It's amazing. It is a very, very exciting sensation to not contribute anything to the, uh, you know, the carbon footprint and still live, you know, a relatively lush Western, um, you know, lifestyle, yes. but not make it any worse, but not and make the not, world any worse. And it's not as if you're, you know, being a power Nazi and running around the house turning everything off, yeah, we'd still, the girls would be streaming something on their um on their um, apps and on their on their um, laptops that are plugged in, um, my wife would be look looking at the telly in, in in one of the other rooms, and I'd be I'd be in the sort of lounge room um, watching telly or playing a video game or something or other, and and yeah, um, and the and the washing machines on at the same time. So yeah, I think they're a fantastic idea, and I'm so glad that I ended up purchasing one, and I think it. Um, you know, punching the figures, the numbers, I think it um, 
pays itself off in about three years or so. Yeah, um, yeah. but it's also um, yeah, just that warm fuzzy feeling that you're not um, that you just it's all sort of solar powered going into the battery and storage and then using that battery power when the sun goes down and it's uh, yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, the other good thing too, I think, is that you um you contribute to a critical mass. That if you know, I, I accept that those things are expensive at the moment, and there are ways to get discounts. But you've you've once they reach a certain threshold volume, critical mass of production, um, then um, you know the the uh, there's certain a uh, cost. Um, you know, the cost comes down because of the, the means of production start to change um, yes. to more massive. Same, same with solar, Mark. I mean, you've, as you know, you've got the solar as well. And when I first put the solar on, there wasn't a heap of people in our in our street that had solar, and the relatives would say, "Oh, you know, why are you spending whatever it was seven thousand greenie ten thousand dollars to do solar?" And it, and it literally again, it paid itself off within five years, and, yeah. and it, it's making money for us. And our electricity bill, gee, so we've had the odd, we've literally had the odd um, month of electricity bill where it's negative. That you know, we've literally had had credit given to us, um, whereas. Um, Previously, we, you know, and electricity is not cheap in Australia compared with some other companies. I, I think we're it's something crazy like fifteen hundred, two thousand a year dollars. Um, we were paying for our electricity bill. We were so, we were at one stage. I think it was um twelve hundred a quarter. So, um, yeah. uh, and we've cut that to less than five percent um, with the, the setup. So I, I, it like you said, pays for itself in four four. For something year four point so I just don't understand why more people don't do it, Mark. When you know that little, it's like a, it's like buying shares or something. I don't know. <laughs> invested in superannuation, you know, um, a little bit up front, but it pays off handsomely. So that's my review, Mark, and I give my Tesla battery and typical Tesla sort of is a little bit of sleekness about the actual battery, <laughs> <laughs> the look of it, and the app is very slick as well. Uh, I'd give it. I give it a very strong nine point five out of ten, Mark. Nine point five. Normally, only five percent. Normally, I argue with your um, extravagant uh, scoring system, but in this time, I fully endorse it. Excellent. Well, I think with that, we'll jump into uh, um, the secrets of aging, Mark. You want to talk about aging? Well, this is a uh, an article from scrolling up to the top once again. Um, I don't know where it's from. I'll look that up for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, uh, the New York Times. Yes. Um, it's uh, um, uh, one of the uh, article curation services has tossed us this from the uh, New York Times. And it talks about dogs and um, their patterns of ageing. In particular, it highlights a number of studies which suggest that um, scientists are going to use the... the uh, the nature of aging in dogs to um, to reveal many of the secrets that might be applicable to people, um, and I found it a fascinating, um, you know, uh, uh, public accessible science summary um, in that it looked at a number of the ways that um, studies have uh, looked at dogs and their patterns of aging and how they do correlate with um, humans and. And made me ask why 
why dogs are often used for this purpose. Um, and look, one thing I think, um, and the article points out, that um, there are relatively uh, uh, obvious corresponding age-related stages. You know, we know that dogs are uh, pre-adolescent, adolescent, um, yeah, adults, um, and then enter their senior geriatric old age years. Um, and so those life stages correlate very similarly to, um, you know, uh, uh, the sorts of things that happen to humans. Um, and so they may represent a good model in some respects for human ageing. Um, and, and I've always been fascinated by the way anxiety changes over the course of a dog's life. And my experience is a little bit different to, um, to what the research seems to point at. Um, and that's the way that uh, um, the studies suggested that as dogs age, they um, tend to get less anxious, um, uh, almost uh, a, an analogy to the um, I don't care what I'm saying attitude that my parents have. Um, you know, I'm going to just say my mind and I don't care what anyone else thinks about it. Um, they, they worry less about that sort of thing. But many dogs seem, in my experience at least, seem to worry about other things more. And once again, maybe that's a, a thing that's related to, um, to my parents who have a whole bunch of other things to worry about. Um, there was an interesting, uh, that paragraph about dogs aging, a recent paper um, uh, yes. disproved. That was quite funny. Disproves the calculus that of seven dog years for every human year. That's no longer an accurate representation. So, what is the formula, Mark? You need to read this out. I do. do. To, To calculate dog years, you must now multiply the natural logarithm of a dog's age in human years by 16 and then add 31. Is that clear? It's actually not as hard as it sounds, as long as you have a calculator or internet access. For example, the natural log of 6 is 1.8, roughly, which multiplied by 16 is about 29, which plus 31 is 60. So Uh, a six-year-old dog is 60. Yeah. Well, and once again, I think you've got to factor in a six-year-old Great Dane is probably a different... Um, kettle of fish than a, a six-year-old Jack Russell Terrier, um, but yeah, you get the idea that um, that uh, seven to one isn't um, isn't uh, as as universal or accurate as we might think. Well, it's a load of crap, isn't it, Mark? <laughs> the old age in dogs thing is is my summary for that. I don't, um, yeah, I don't. I think no matter how many times I try and calculate it, um, a dog's a dog. And they're as old as they are. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes, sorry to interrupt you there. Do you think that um, uh, that um, the other, one of the other reasons that um, dogs often represent a um, suitable study subject for uh, investigation into ageing has to do with that we understand, you know, that whole reason they became companion animals because their social structure and whatnot uh, has a good approximation of ours so we can insert ourselves into it do you think that helps or hurts the 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 studies of aging yes it well i think it's why we study it for sure and um yeah it does make it difficult to 
to separate uh, our connection, I think, um, with the actual the actual um, hard data um, with it. Yeah, um, it's a, it was a very interesting article. This um, I, it did, I did find it fascinating. And what about but, the ethics of? There, there was one point in the article where they suggested that studying dogs is better than studying people because. You know, you can study much more about aging over rather than waiting 80 years until a person gets old. You can study several generations of dogs getting old. I don't know. That sounds a little bit, um, I don't know. Strange. The ethics yes. of it worry me yeah. just a little bit. You learn about, yeah, their, their quote was, you can learn about it more quickly than waiting 80 years until somebody dies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, no, um, Interesting article, Mark. Yes, um, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there's my, no easy segue. No, my, my one is uh, my one's about death and destruction, Mark. Oh, yeah. well done. <laughs> <laughs> the five costliest invasive species, and this was very. I found this. Um, a real, it was almost like a meta study, wasn't it? It was about invasive species, looking at invasive species worldwide and putting a dollar figure on um, what um, cost these various invas- invasions have um, at particular times. And they looked through 19,000 published papers, Mark, and they analysed about 1,900 in more detail. And they um, look in between 1970 and 2017, the annual cost of invasive species roughly doubled every six years, reaching a yearly bill of 162.7 billion mark in 2017. But the fascinating thing I found was the summary and a groovy little graph as well of um, the top um, 10 costliest invasive species mark. And number one, I wouldn't have actually picked it, but it certainly makes sense, is a mosquito, the Asian tiger mosquito, which arrived in the USA in the mid-1980s, but it's hitchhiked around the world and it transmits a range of diseases like Zika, yellow fever, dengue, etc. And they estimate 149 billion, Mark, um, the... um, Factor um, of the, um, the the destruction that this um, invasive species causes. Number two, well, one that our good old friend Rattus Rattus, Mark, sixty-seven billion, and number three, Felis catus, our little friend the cat. Number four, termites, nineteen billion. Uh, fire ants, number five at seventeen billion, and uh, they mainly spoke about these five top ones. But interestingly enough, Mark, they had brown tree snakes as number six, um, with um, you know the the issues they have with brown tree snakes, especially in some of those tropical um, um, regions as well, um, and going down to even African bees, Mark, being um, um, causing billions of dollars worth of um, damage. So you know, the interesting you- thing about this for me was that um, was the 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 bloody poor effort the vertebrates have done to, <laughs> to get it on up on this list. Like literally, there are in the top ten, there are just three vertebrates. Brown tree snakes, cats, and rats. All the others are insects. Yes, yes. Um, 
But gee, we need to we need to work on those mozzies, don't we? I I don't know about you, Mark, but mozzies love me. Whenever I we used to go camping all the time, um, they always like to suck my blood. So, um, are you a, a mozzie magnet? I don't know what uh, the lower amount of carbon dioxide I release, the the less attractive pheromones that I possess um, means that I less frequently get bitten. Uh, so you've, you've probably got less hot air than I have, Mark, so <laughs> you're a lucky man. Yeah. Well, let's jump into our main topic, which is a bit of a – I think this is like a detective story, this one, and, and this is where I'm going to quiz you, Mark, and you're going to – you're going to solve the mystery, um, which is lorikeet paralysis syndrome. And um, well, I've got to say, before before you ask me any questions, I do yes. have to point out that um, uh, you know there's been some wonderful researchers from the time Ross Perry first started talking about these these cases, these sorts of cases in Sydney. I know our own Alex Rosenwax has done a huge amount of. Um, of research on these cases as well, um, and more recently, particularly over the the last ten years, um, Claude Lacasse up on the Gold Coast and David Phelan um, all have contributed a huge amount of additional um, uh, understanding. But we still haven't got to the end yet, I think, and that's yes. an important thing to talk I, about. And yes, I didn't want to steal other people's thunder with with um, your summary of it, Mark. So so good point there. Um, and I think the key there is that um, whenever something's named a syndrome, that um, <laughs> we don't quite know what's going on with it. So let's get back to basics. So what are the signs of this lorikeet paralysis syndrome and which species do we see it in? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's a, that's an excellent point to start with because we can get uh, a little bit before ourselves. We regularly see rainbow lorikeets, uh, our, probably our most popular species um, on, of parrot on Eastern Australia, uh, presented at our hospital with, um, with an inability to move their legs is probably the outstanding thing, probably some uncoordination, uh, incoordination uh, and inability to fly means that people are able to catch them um, and then they're presented with a degree of paralysis. Um, and as you said, um, they often all get lumped together into the rather broadly named lorikeet paralysis syndrome. Um, but there are a bunch of different things going on and some things we thought that were going on that probably are not. So it's a, it is a, um, an very interesting series of uh, clinical entities. And there's some great... Um videos isn't there and i think you could probably do a, a dr google search and find some um classic videos of the syndrome um with these birds that vets of vet and carers have filmed um with those those sort of neurological signs um what other sort of signs do you see mark apart from the um, inability to use there um to get around well they're mainly uh, the sort of musculoskeletal signs that you would see so they um Various forms of uh, paralysed bird might have um, some uh, weakness going along with the paralysis. They might have some evidence of pain. Um, uh, some of the entities uh, have evidence of um, uh, 
damage to the nerves of the syrinx, and so they have altered voice. Um, and uh, probably in the the most common form of the disease, they might even end up with um, uh, paralysis of the eyelids and nictitating membrane. So, playing the playing the um, client with this, Mark, um, <laughs> or the uninformed, which isn't hard for me to do. Um, do we see this in wild birds, or do we see it in pet birds, or both? So. I'd take it a step back and I'd say we definitely see paralysed birds in both wild and um, captive birds. I think the the pathogenesis of that paralysis is probably different in the different um, cases. Um, so there are a group of processes that happen in captive birds um, uh, for example, we will definitely see trauma, birds that crash into the end of their aviary because a, a brown goshawk has swooped over. They'll uh, definitely um, have evidence of nervous issues if they've uh, uh, done damage to their spinal or central nervous system. Um, we also have uh, birds, female birds, particularly um, in the warmer months of the year, uh, develop issues with um, translocating fat. So they might have uh, egg yolk embolus and um, it's probable that um, those emboli occur in numerous locations but if they end up entering the blood vessels of the central nervous system they will cause some issues. Um, and there are some nutritional problems that can happen um, that potentially can lead to a degree of nervous dysfunction in captive birds. Um, but the classic uh, um, paralyzed lorikeet that uh, that fits into the you know the most numerical case are the wild ones. Um, most commonly, the wild birds. Um, will come in um, and they'll um, they'll demonstrate the classic lorikeet paralysis syndrome. Ah, so is it acute onset? Is it slow? Do you see both? Um, so what's the classic presentation with that animal? Is it just brought into your clinic, not able to fly and, and, and walk and showing those neuromuscular signs? Yes, and the interesting thing is that um, that this part, the, the, you know, how I'm going to answer now is um, I, I, it's a lot of detective work because we don't, we don't know when they, when the insult occurs, we don't know how long it takes from between the insults of the clinical signs develop. What we can say is that um, the birds that are presented do not have significant plumage damage. So it would appear that it's a relatively acute thing, maybe, you know, a day or two from the time of the insult um, to the time that the bird is sufficiently paralysed that a member of the public can collect it and take it to a veterinary hospital. So relatively quick, usually. Yes. So what do we do, Mark? Um, we're going to talk about potential um, um the cause of this um, <laughs> syndrome shortly, but what's your approach to them when they're brought into the to the clinic? Well, 
it's a tough question to answer because I've had many different approaches over the years. Um, we've often considered um, uh, anti-inflammatory medications, being concerned that there may be some form of um, central nervous system inflammation. Yes. Um, and uh, that's, well, been equivocal, I would say. Um, uh, I wouldn't have attributed a significant um success to those um managing the the complications managing the pressure sores the uh the anxiety of not being able to move normally trying to nurse these birds um is probably the treatment uh that seems most applicable um but um there and one of the things i suppose initially that uh, made it difficult for us to make assessments about these is that we would often in the early days assume that you know there were quality of life issues that we couldn't control and we didn't know where this was going to end and so we euthanized many of these birds um not inappropriately i don't think that that's not something that i would say i absolutely regret but it did limit our mm understanding of the long-term progress of the disease and it was only at a time when we had carers that had sufficient resources and and uh um and uh suitability their own their own suitability to working with these animals for a long time that um that we would have uh birds that would be kept in care for maybe a month uh, maybe um six months or a year um when we would see them gradually get better over time uh, so what would you say so if it was one a, a pet um, bird that was brought in with these signs and you were fairly convinced it had this syndrome, what's your prognosis that you um, state to the client um, when it first comes through the door? Well, we do a, a little bit of work up in terms of uh, taking some radiographs. So uh, we've got um, some baseline data. Um, we assess the diet and make sure that it's a you know a, a, a full and um, not overly energetic diet. Um, but we generally give clients once we've worked our way through um, uh, those initial investigations. Um, and uh, and we talk to them about reproductive activity. If we still think we're dealing with a bird that um, has the this lorikeet paralysis syndrome, um, then we're giving them a much better prognosis at this stage than probably we would have, um, uh, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. Yes. What causes this condition <laughs> <laughs> well that that's uh, and you know this is a story on its own because yes. um there has been um uh, uh various propositions that um that there's been a, a viral cause the, the nature the outbreak sort of nature of it that um that uh um, there would be a time when a whole bunch of these birds would come down um that outbreak uh, scenario um, suggested to people that there was possibly a, a viral etiology. Um, there's been many samples taken, many uh, brains collected from uh, euthanized animals and many investigations to look for. And those bloody um, uh, DNA tools, molecular diagnostic tools to search for viral uh 
uh, potential viral causes of diseases are pretty powerful now, and they've all but ruled out viruses as a cause of this disease. So that's a good thing. I know that um, some toxins, lead and and uh, and maybe some uh, bacterial toxins in food that's been left out by um, well-meaning um, people feeding the lorikeets, they've been incriminated. But once again, um, uh, um, investigations have, have largely ruled those out as potential causes. And the main suspect um, really hasn't been narrowed down much more than to say that some sort of likely introduced plant um, that is producing um, something that the lorikeets really like um, is must contain for a period of time some neurotoxin that attaches to the nerves and interferes with their normal function, but uh, that that um, interference in normal function is, is uh, not progressive. Um, and gradually, as the nerves um, replace the the uh, um, the chemical receptors, uh, as they turn those over, the the um, you know much like um, botulism um, attaches to um, nerve endings, um, the botulinum toxin. Um, this toxin from a plant has a similar action, and um, once those receptors are turned over, the, the birds regularly recover. So now investigations, there's a number of citizen science projects um, uh, looking to see um, what uh, uh, introduced maybe garden plant um, that the birds uh, are interested in might be a, a suspect. Um, so it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years um, how that progresses. And that in itself, we were talking about research and and uh, ethics earlier. Um, what's going to happen when we do have a significant suspect? What if we go, oh, this particular plant seems to be the one causing the problem. Are we going to conduct um, feeding trials on captive lorikeets to see if they develop the syndrome? Is that an ethical thing to do, Brendan? Mm. It's a tricky one, isn't it? It is a tricky one. Um, but if you were the investigator, what would you be doing? Well, I'd definitely want to find out because um, uh, because I think there is, firstly, um, a significant amount of suffering that could be avoided um, if we knew the, the plant that was causing the problem. And I suspect that while, um, you know, rainbow lorikeets are not, critically endangered or anything, but there are a number of species of uh, um, nectivorous birds that are critically um, endangered. And if they were to um, suffer a similar sort of um, problem, then that might have a, a much, much more significant effect. So um, so I think that it's well, there, there are strong arguments to finding out what the plant is, but whether I could justify feeding trials as the method that may be the only way to go to figure this out. Mm. Um, it, it's um yeah the light. I I I don't know that I would want to be the researcher presenting that um that uh, um, scientific um uh, that that experiment to the ethics committee of the university I worked at. Two more questions, Mark. Before we Mister Outro heads in to head us off. Um, 
What would the typical sort of period of time that you would um, see with these cases that come into your clinic um, to when they turn around and respond with with, um, supportive care and get home again? So it it would regularly be um, something between three and four weeks as a minimum and sometimes as long as six months before they um, they return to, uh, you know, normal function to a level where you could consider releasing them. Mm. And the final question is the ones that don't make it, the ones that um, end up dying, um, what do you see? if anything, on, on post-mortem examination and how do you make your diagnosis of this syndrome or is it by an ex- exclusion of the other potential causes? There's not. The birds that um, I've uh, necropsied at, that have passed away or been euthanized as a result of this syndrome don't show significant um, changes besides the fact that um, they're probably... Um, uh, they're they're rel- usually relatively fit birds, um, being wild birds, um, and they're relatively lean, having you know utilised not having not consumed as much food over the last part of their life as probably they normally would. They've consumed, they've used some of their resources, so their fat resources are gone. Um, but outside of that, there's no outstanding sort of um, uh, uh, pathognomonic. Um, uh, uh, necropsy sign that I would say they look pretty normal on the inside. Yes. Well, it's a fascinating one, Mark, and I think it's going to be a while before you get your trials under underway <laughs> <laughs> with those with those feeding trials with those birds and um, yeah, these pesky syndromes. Hey, Mark, these pesky syndromes. Um, any final comments before we head off? My only comment is that both you and I are now old enough that some of these syndromes did start out as uh, complete question marks. We had no idea outside of just describing the clinical signs of the animals that come to us. But it's fascinating. We've been in the game long enough that uh, now we're, you know, narrowing some of these syndromes down to, well, they need a new name. They're no longer syndromes, are they? Some of them. We know what they are. That's right. That's right. And and with that, I'm off to look up my real age in logarithmic <laughs> value, Mark. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Hold up. 